We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain, living in Canada, and who's worked in the U.S. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Our topic is passionate amateurs as inspired innovators in family caregiving. Now, what hosting Family Caregivers Unite has taught me is that family caregivers are themselves so often passionate amateurs who are inspired as innovators in family caregiving. You know, family caregivers are passionate in their caring too often to the point that they exhaust themselves physically, mentally, and even financially. They're amateurs in the sense that they are too often unprepared for and too often unsupported in their family caregiving. They're innovators because too often They are unsure of where to go for all the advice, all the help, and all the support they need, and not just for the things that healthcare offers. And they're so often inspired in the way that they travel the hard, hard road of family caregiving, then they pause, look over their shoulders, and hold out a helping hand to help family caregivers who are just starting down that road. So here's the question for our guest. How do other passionate amateurs with inspired innovations help family caregivers? To answer this and other questions, my guest is Al Atmansky. Now, Al is an author, blogger, advocate, and social entrepreneur specializing in innovative, multi-sector solutions to complex societal challenges. He's co-founder and president of the Planned Lifetime Advocacy Network, that's www.plan.ca. This assists families across Canada and globally in addressing the financial and social well-being of relatives with a disability, particularly in situations after the death of parents. He proposed and led the successful campaign to establish the world's first savings plan for people with disabilities, the Registered Disability Savings Plan. He's currently partner in the J.W. McConnell Family Foundation Social Innovation Generation, dedicated to scaling up innovative solutions to deeply rooted social problems. He chairs the B.C. Government's Advisory Council on Social Entrepreneurship Investment. Welcome to the show, Al. Well, thank you. I'm going to enjoy the next hour. I can tell it already. Thank you very much. Let's go. Your turn. Al, please tell us more about your career 
and how you became interested in the role of passionate amateurs in supporting people with health challenges and their family caregivers too. Well, I think I'll have to tell a little story about myself uh, uh, in, in my professional uh, career. I was um, trained uh, as a social worker, and um, so I came out of, uh, uh, out of the School of Social Work um, brand spanking you, uh, armed with all of the solutions to what ails uh, society, individuals, communities, families, and the like. And um, I have to say, when I look back now, uh, that was a fairly arrogant set of assumptions I was making about what my capacity was. And um, shortly after I uh, graduated, um, um, my second daughter was born uh, with a disability. And um, what happened then was, uh, if you will, a humbling process, because I began to realize uh, the limitations of my profession in supporting um, our family, uh, in coming to terms with the fact that uh, one of our uh, children had a disability, and ensuring that uh, she would have a good life. Um, So I found myself uh, in a situation where I became the client, uh, and I didn't like it at all, um, and where most of the questions that were uh, addressed to my wife and I betrayed, uh, in my mind at least, betrayed uh, an assumption on the part of the questionnaire that we um, didn't have the capability of raising our daughter. And um, I didn't like that at all. I squirmed. um, To some extent, I rebelled against it. And um, I would have to say that my journey since then has been about um, uh, kind of reforming myself as as a social worker. So coming to terms with the limitations of the professional and uh, and appreciating deeply and dearly uh, the ca- capability of every individual and family uh, to solve their own problems. So the experience with your daughter has been your main family experience, that is your family experience with family caregiving, or are there any other aspects of family caregiving with which you've been involved? Well, in the widest interpretation of that, uh, raising children is family caregiving. Um, <clears throat> having aging parents, uh, particularly as they approach uh, the end of their life, um, you know, also gives you an experience. So I, I would say that uh, <clears throat> now that I have my glasses on properly, I, I understand that caregiving is everywhere, that it is a dominant arc in our lives um, of giving or receiving care. It's just not the kind of thing that receives much attention in the media or indeed even by historians when they chronicle the lives of kings, queens, or military rulers and the the like. But uh, I would argue that uh, my experience at caregiving is is ongoing um, and uh, omnipresent. Right. Um, I'm tempted to comment that it's taken for granted so often, isn't it, this, the family caregiving? Excuse me, I... I, I... Okay, my comment back to you is that so often family caregiving is taken for granted by society, isn't it? Yes, Gordon, uh, for some reason you're fading away on me, so I'm not sure if it's my connection, but I'm missing your question. Okay, let me try another one then, another question, and I want you to tell us about PLAN, the Planned Lifetime Advocacy Network. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Okay. So, yes, uh, and thanks for that delicious question. 
And so my own personal experience that, uh, you know, as, if you will, a family caregiver is one thing, but <clears throat> uh, having a daughter with a disability is, is like being uh, uh, given the opportunity to join royalty. Um, and uh, so um, I quickly became connected with the royal family of disability and an amazing, amazing legion of families out there who are uh, constantly innovating in how they take care of their sons and daughters. And one group I ran into was a group of older parents uh, who came to me one day and said, you know, Al, we need your help. Uh, we're not getting any younger. They were all, their average age was about 75. Um, we're, we're pleased with all of the other things that you're doing for uh, people with disabilities, but we're worried about what will happen to our sons and daughters when we die. And would you come and help us put together a strategy for answering the question, what will happen to my our, our son or daughter, our son or daughter when we die? And that was really the genesis of the uh, plan and the key question that still uh, motivates the organization. We thought we might support about 75 families and uh, within a matter of years realized that the world is experiencing for the first time ever um, a demographic change in that people with disabilities, a whole generation, of people with disabilities are outliving their uh, their moms and their dads, and that's a good thing. But the systems, the institutions, aren't prepared to, for it. So, plan offers uh, will and estate planning, all of the kind of basic technical information that you need. Uh, we're not lawyers, but we know as much about it as uh, lawyers do. But the most important uh, thing that we do is remind families that what keeps people safe what ensures that they have well-being, uh, they have a good life, our friends and families. And so we have specialized in enhancing uh, a network of support around an individual with disabilities. Or when one doesn't exist, um, we uh, will actually develop a personal network so that there is a team of people, almost like a halo of support, around the individual of people who love and care for them, maybe not in the same way that mom and dad does, but in a way that when mom and dad sees this network of support, they can heave a sigh of relief, have some peace of mind, and begin to contemplate their own uh, good death. We're going to go into the break any moment now, but just quickly mention the kind of disabilities that you're talking about. Really, Gordon, all kinds. Um, we're not uh, specific to any particular kind of disability. We work uh, with families who have sons and daughters with, with what would be known as developmental disabilities, complex physical handicapping conditions, but uh, people with mental illness. But, you know, truth be told, we kind of forget about the disability. We're, you don't organize a social network you don't build a team of people around somebody to love and support and care for them based on, on their disability. You build it on what, they, what their passions are. So we kind of say, yes, we'll support anyone, <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, we uh, are more interested in the individual's passions, their interests, their talents, and we build a network around, around that. We're going to talk in the, after the break about how those networks come around and how you how you build and create them but now it is our time to take the short break as i like to say we have to pay the rent this is dr gordon adley and my guest is al Edmansky. 
You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned. We are definitely coming back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darlings, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style, every Wednesday afternoon at 2 Pacific, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our guest, Al Edmansky. Our topic is passionate amateurs as inspired innovators in family caregiving. Let's now talk about the challenges in family caregiving and the way passionate amateurs with innovative instincts helpful with these challenges. So, Al, first off, what do you see as the particularly challenging challenges for persons with what we'll call healthcare challenges, what you refer to as disabilities, and what makes these challenges so challenging? Well, <clears throat> this may seem like a, um, a, a, a tangent uh, answer, uh, Gordon, but I actually think the the, the biggest challenge faced by people with disabilities, by older people, by people with chronic illness, is, um, is increased isolation and loneliness. And um, there's now enough studies out there that suggest that social isolation um, is the equivalent of being a regular smoker in terms of the impact on your health. 
um, that you get sick when you have a robust social network. You get sick less often. You heal more quickly. You use less services, and of course, you have a you have a good life. Um, and the other modern phenomenon that's occurring right now in our society is that more and more and more of us are living alone. Now, some of that's of our own choosing, but a lot of that <clears throat> is the result of um, of the breakdown of even the nuclear family. Um, and so there is a tremendous amount. We, we actually argue that it, there is an epidemic of isolation and loneliness um, in uh, North American society right now. So I see that as a significant challenge that will that impacts health care, and if we don't pay attention, will continue to impact health care. There are two things, aren't there, that you've just mentioned. One is um, people living alone, particularly aging people living alone. The other North American challenge, particularly, is people living at vast distances from their families. So without necessarily focusing on those two points, but I think they are interesting to many people. Let me ask you, in what way do our passionate amateurs with the innovative instinct help with those challenges or other ones that you'd like to mention? Well, they do it, they do it in a couple of ways. <clears throat> the first thing uh, that passionate amateurs do, and they always do it, is they do something uh, about the immediate challenge. Uh, so no matter how impossible the challenge, if it's unacceptable, they go out there and they do something about it. And so all over society, we see uh, people coming together uh, to befriend others who are isolated, to come together in networks and to figure out ways to support people and to uh, welcome them back into community life. So passionate amateurs are doers. They're people who... Um, experience uh, the hardship or the pain or witness it, and they're going to do something about it because they can't stand it. The other thing that they're doing, uh, and I'd like to think that our organization plan has played a major role in that, is that they raise to the attention of government and public policy makers and funders like foundations that this is a very important social challenge. And so uh, passionate amateurs are like the canaries in the mind, that they're experiencing, witnessing, and seeing the emerging challenges before they get on the radar screen of systems, certainly months before, but I would argue years before. And so that's a very important role for passionate amateurs. Now, I'd like to ask you for some real-life examples. First off, of the kind of things that you've just mentioned, that is the way the passionate amateurs spot something and move in on it at an early stage, and something there means some kind of loneliness problem or distance problem. So let's let's, let's talk about some real-life examples, please. Sure. I'll give you one. Now, this is um, a rather unique one to my home province of British Columbia, Canada, but I'm very proud of it. And I know that other jurisdictions are looking at it and are trying to model it in some ways. But, and this relates to the question of uh, adult guardianship. So this is always in the background uh, related to people who are judged uh, to be incapable for legal reasons. Is How do we provide support to people who need decisions made uh, with them or on their behalf? And um, 
What a group of very passionate amateurs in British Columbia did was reform the law around adult guardianship to create something that's called a representation agreement. So it's in law, it's in statute, and it's a, I call it a grassroots version of enduring powers of attorney. And it allows somebody who might have diminished legal capacity, who might come in and out of capability, or who might, in traditional ways, might be judged to be intellectually incapable. It allows them to identify people who will support them to make decisions without them losing their status as a decision maker and without the costs of formal legal guardianship. This is called a representation agreement, and the the criterion for capacity that's added to the traditional criteria for determining somebody's capabilities is, get this, Gordon, uh, this is now in statute in British Columbia, Canada, the existence of a caring, trusting relationship is one of the criterion to determine whether somebody has the capacity to identify someone else to help them make decisions. That's very, very powerful. And I just want to come back to you with what was expressed in a previous episode of Family Caregivers. Um, This was a mother talking about her daughter who has the tragic condition of schizophrenia. And the mom was substitute decision maker, had power of attorney. But what she said to her, to the program, is that she wants her daughter to live as far as possible a normal life in the community. But then, the mum said, there are times when this illness gets in the way and my daughter isn't able to make decisions in her own best interest. And that's where, and this is the mum speaking, I have to step in and make decisions for her. Now, what I've just described, is that the sort of situation that this regulation you're talking about would address? Yes, it would have that and does have that flexibilities. These are often called Ulysses agreements. So these are this is a very um, generic term, so it's not a legal um, a term I'm referring to. Um, but uh, So this enables people with um, mental illness who are aware of the symptoms of their illness, who are able to articulate it, and who are able to say when any, let's say, three or four of these symptoms exist, I'm in my illness, and I hereby grant the following individuals permission to make decisions on my behalf. So uh, it allows them to still have their decision-making capability acknowledged. It doesn't strip them of it. It's not that kind of crude, traditional tool of guardianship. So it allows that kind of flexibility that you've just described. That's fundamental to another big word, with a powerful meaning, and that's autonomy. That is the respect we have for individuals to live their own lives and make their own decisions as far as they possibly can and to get involved only to the point where it's necessary and really is necessary, um, perhaps because they need protection and things like that. Now, I'm I'm putting that point to you as a question. That is, have I understood correctly what you're saying when I use the word autonomy and the need to protect autonomy. Yes, um, yes you have. I uh, prefer to use the word choice 
but uh, um, I think uh, I think we're on the same page uh, in that regard. And yes, we um, I think we want to collectively ensure that people are not abused and they're not exploited. Uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, we want to ensure that their uh, ability to um, express their desires, their preferences, their tastes, their choices, um, their beliefs, their etc., are uh, re- not only heard uh, but respected. So it's that. Um, sometimes it can be delicate, but it is that balancing act. So uh, autonomy is a, is a very good word, and you can see the implication for. Um, let's say, um, public guardianship systems or healthcare systems that need to enforce a more regimented, formal, and costly system at a time of declining resources. You could see why the passionate amateur's invention of something like a representation agreement, which has more flexibility and more respect for the autonomy of the individual um, it can, you know, will be needed um, in this day and age of declining government resources. This, in other words, is us, the people, uh, doing more for ourselves in the way of providing support for people among us who, for one reason or another, aren't always or aren't sufficiently able to do all the things they need to do for themselves. And that, if I'm right in that, that raises a very powerful message, doesn't it, for the planning of the healthcare system in the future? Am I right? Yeah, you, you are right. Um, I would argue um, that people not only are capable of doing more for themselves, uh, but I may, might tweak it just a little bit and say that they already are doing it. And sometimes the job of a system is actually to get out of the way. Sometimes, inadvertently, over time, incremental changes are made by. Uh, public institutions and government-funded systems that actually prevent people from helping each other. So the kinds of examples that you and I are talking about now and perhaps your listeners are imagining, they're happening all the time. And often they're happening uh, be- uh, in a way in which people have to figure out a way to get around, uh, around the system. Um, so, uh, yes, I think we want more of what's happening, but I also think we need to acknowledge that a lot of it is happening already and that maybe the first job of, um, of planners in public policy is to uh, figure out where they're, they're actually getting in the way of people helping each other. Now, we ha- we're going to go into the break, and I'm just going to respond to you very quickly uh, by saying this is where better understanding, I think, is needed of what, that, uh, what you're talking about when we are discussing this broad issue of family caregiving. So let's go into the break, because it's that time. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Al Mansky. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, take a visit inside the locker room of your favorite sport with Dez Clark. 
Hall, Fresh Clark, and Lester Scudder Davis as they bring you sportsmanlike conduct. As a current player, Des Clark can bring you inside the sports world like nobody can. His co-hosts represent the fans of the sports world. With both points of view on the table, it becomes an engaging and entertaining program to say the least. Sportsmanlike conduct can be heard Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Amateurs, welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our guest, L. Atmansky. Our topic is Passionate Amateurs as Inspired Innovators in Family Caregiving. Now, let's, this, in this segment, compare Passionate Amateurs Innovations for Family Caregiving with the innovations of the big players in healthcare. So, Al, you were talking about sometimes the government healthcare systems getting in the way of um, the kind of things you've been talking about, like uh, representation agreements. Let's talk about health, government healthcare systems and their innovations and the way they compare with those of the passionate amateurs. Well, I, I'm, uh, I don't want to mislead, uh, Gordon, you or your, or your listeners, um, I actually, um, over my career, have come to appreciate the um, deep caring of um, and creativity of people who work for healthcare institutions, um, either directly for government departments or in hospitals and the like. I do think, however, that um, they have a script that's very confining and, to some extent, uh, paralyzing. Um, First of all, um, they, um, it, it is very hard for them to innovate inside uh, a bureaucracy. Um, the evolution of bureaucracy in the last 40 or 50 years has been toward a risk-free environment. There is no toleration, no tolerance for risk. This is a big handicap. Because all invention, all innovation, and businesses know this, occurs by taking some chances, uh, making some mistakes, mistakes, and learning from that. Um, and uh, this, unfortunately, does not exist in um, in public institutions. So that's very much a handicap. Um, the second handicap is that um, big uh, systems, uh, healthcare institutions. 
uh, don't have the liberty to reframe questions. So, for example, um, in our work at PLAN that we started out the program discussing, we decided to reframe disability and said that the biggest challenges faced by people with disabilities uh, aren't their disabling conditions. They are the handicaps of isolation and loneliness and the handicap of poverty. And so that's a reframing. Now, all of the government institutions that support people with disabilities and their families, they're all predicated on the assumption that uh, people with disabilities need programs and services to ameliorate their disabling condition. And so the focus is there rather than the focus on enabling uh, people with disabilities to live a good life and make a contribution. So uh, I don't want to go on too long, but those are two big handicaps, I think, of systems for innovation. Um, Not that there isn't the attempt to do it, but um, there aren't the kind of robust, um, um, innovative bureaus within government that exist in uh, the private sector. private sector, they often call it research and development. Some of them budget 50 60% of their annual budgets toward research and development to explore the new and to stay abreast. This does not exist inside systems. Passionate amateurs are therefore almost by default (laughs) the incubator for innovative change. Let's now talk about the charitable healthcare organizations. You've been talking about government healthcare systems and healthcare systems themselves. Let's talk about what is in fact in North America a major sector represented by what I call the charitable healthcare organizations. What about them compared to... Well, I, I, would, I would probably uh, make some parallels uh, there. First of all, most of the, uh, as you call it, the charitable, but they're actually, um, they're, they're most of the uh, charitable sector, the nonprofit sector in North America, receives contracts from government to deliver services. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, in Canada. And so they have their eye on the funder as much as they do on the client. And so um, it, it, um, it requires great leaps um, to eject yourself from that system. So one of the waves of change that is spreading um, across the United Kingdom uh, to some extent, uh, Canada and the United States is a wave called direct payments. So this is where uh, money that is allocated to support somebody in a health or social care situation is unbundled from the service provider, i.e. the nonprofit charity, and provided to the individual directly, and so they are in the position of being a purchaser of the services they need rather than simply trying to become eligible what the service provider thinks they need. So it provides much more flexibility. And studies seem to show that it's actually a better use of money, it doesn't use as much money, and uh, the individual is happier. Um, that, uh, that kind of change has not been easy for the nonprofit sector. So they have, um, they have their own interest in maintaining uh, the status quo. And so, again, um, the direct payment uh, action, a group of families essentially in the U.K. called In Control, 
had to uh, lobby vigorously for uh, about five years to uh, ensure that this became something that was offered to uh, older people, people with disabilities and their families, and people on income assistance in the UK, that they had the option to opt for direct payment. Let's talk a little bit more about the direct payments in a couple of ways. First one, it seems to me that what you've just described is more of the theme that we want to give, I'm going to use my word, autonomy. We want to respect the decision-making. We want to respect the needs expressed and felt by the person with the particular disability. So am I right in that understanding, Al? Yes, yes, definitely. Now, inevitably, in a, in a society like ours, there's going to be questions of, well, why should we give money? How do we know they'll spend it sensibly? Uh, I, I'm asking the question because it's a political question. I'm not necessarily subscribing to the question. How do you respond to that? Well, let, let me say two things. So first of all, there's the accountability question, and um, there's all kinds of mechanisms that are in place. There's fiscal, uh, they, they call them by different terms and names, but there's fiscal intermediaries that are available. So to keep track of the money, a budget is agreed upon beforehand, and then you you spend and are accountable for your expenditures based on that allocation. So it's not, oh, you think you need this much amount, <laughs> here, here, go and spend it. So it, there's... Uh, there are ways to um, uh, unitize, if you will, for each individual um, expenditures so that there is accountable accountability for the public dollar. The, the real critical issue, though, is the one you raised, um, it, it, which is this notion of autonomy. And I would argue that do we want our public dollar to be spent to make people more dependent on more services that cost more money? Or do we want to use our public dollar to increase the resiliency of individuals and families and neighbors, co-workers, and community to take care of each other? I think family caregivers want the latter, that they want to uh, not, not only maintain the kind of care they provide, but get the kind of support that they think they need to do more of it. And that makes them resilient and less dependent on costly uh, government-funded services. It also makes them less dependent on people like I used to be, namely physicians. So let's talk about this. Some of, some of my colleagues might refer to what you've been talking about as the, the medicalization of people's health conditions. That is to say they're seen solely as medical problems, to be dealt with by medical solutions like medications or maybe surgery or maybe some other things. Um, what, again, this is a question to you, what, how do you, far do you agree with me on that rather cru crucial term, medicalization, and to what extent do you think it really has been um, influencing this push to get people um, really into the healthcare system and not let them get out of it because their priority is the health treatment rather than the things you're talking about. Well, it's, it's both the medical care system and the social care system, and I, I'm reminded of Mark Twain's wry comment that when you're a hammer, every problem seems like a nail. Yeah. And, um, and so 
so if you are uh, a client of a social care system or a healthcare system that and I've seen it I can you know I can give you so many examples of it um um the search is on for new and better ways in which you have conditions that can be supported by this system um and so the the emphasis is on uh, is on the framework or the eyeglasses or spectacles worn by the assessors uh, or by the uh, the primary provider, and uh, so yeah, it, it builds a dependency. That is the medicalization. We become uh, objects to be moved around uh, by a system. We have we lose our autonomy almost uh, by assumption in that um, in that kind of environment, and we are. Um, uh, we we become permanent clients. My good friend John McKnight, who's written a marvelous book with Peter Block, that I know we tried to get on the show with me, called Abundant Communities, um, you know, likes to refer to what happens in medical and healthcare systems as the increasing clienthood of uh, of our population, uh, and the Latin root of the word client is to follow. And do we want a nation of followers? Or do we want a nation of citizens? And so I think it's really um, a framing of where we allocate resources um, that's very critical. Um, so allocating, in my view, to family caregivers and individuals who are experiencing the issues and ensuring that they have what they need to support themselves first. Now, if there's gaps, then let's fill it. But let's make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to make it as easy as possible for them to do what they want to do. What you're saying um, is, I think, fundamental to the North American history, isn't it? So that is of people who um, did things for themselves, did things for their families, and gained their strength by meeting challenges. Um, that's something that we could have an entire episode on. But it seems to me that what you're doing is moving in that direction, of saying we need to draw out the resources of our, of our people, our communities, and support them in appropriate ways instead of pushing them into systems which might not be the most effective way of helping them or helping society. Now, on that, after that speech, it's time for us uh, to take the break. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Al Atmansky. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at my. M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our guest, Al Edmansky. Our topic is passionate amateurs as inspired innovators in family caregiving. Now, let's talk about what you, Al, would like to see done to encourage passionate amateurs to do more to help with family caregiving. And the people that might be doing the encouraging are the ones I'd like to focus the question on. Now, first of all, what more can the academic and research sectors do to encourage the passionate amateurs? Well, um, I I think they could start by focusing more on this source of innovation. Often uh, when there is a pressure to innovate, uh, the focus is on the nonprofit service providers, it's on government, it's even on business, um, to come up with ways to be more efficient in how resources are used. Um, I think we've talked today enough um, to at least at least give room for a fourth major source of innovation. Those individuals, families, social network, assembly of small groups that come together to provide care for each other and uh, so uh, from a from the academics point of view from the research point of view I'd love to see more attention given to that sector I am particularly interested in increasing the amount of research that looks at the importance of belonging or a social network or reducing isolation and loneliness as a critical component of uh, of healthcare so there's lots of research topics that will come out of a reframing of a discussion if it's no longer just about health care provision or social care provision for older people or for people with disabilities or chronic illness, but in fact is about, for example, a good life, about contributing to the end of your life, about celebrating who you are, about your capability, about ensuring um, that uh, you don't... Um, 
slink in or slump into isolation and loneliness, um, then uh, those are different topics of research than uh, traditionally come out of a mainstream healthcare institution. Okay, let's, it's the same question, but the healthcare systems themselves. Um, what, what more can they do to encourage our passionate amateurs? Well, I think it's starting to happen, uh, and that is that there is a recognition. So we're in a, a time of what I call complexity squared. Um, so we we are having more and more com- you know complex social challenges uh, emerging, and the existing ones aren't going away. So they're tough, stubborn, and a lot more complex than we realize. So we're dealing with a complex set of challenges in uh, an increasingly complex environment uh, where there are many variables at play, one of which is, for, uh, is uh, the uh, decline in government resources. So how do we deal with complex situations and challenges at a time when we don't have the resources that we used to have? So systems, healthcare systems in particular, are beginning to recognize that they need to have a relationship, an authentic relationship, between themselves as formal care providers or funders and the so-called informal um, sector that's out there. And so that's the the passionate amateurs, as we've been talking about it, or family caregivers and the like. And so what's emerging, and your listeners may want to Google this or look it up, are some marvelous... um, terms that, I shouldn't say marvelous, they're actually a little off-putting, but co-production, co-creation, co-construction. So these are systems ways of describing, oh my God, (laughs) we don't have the resources we used to have. We're going to have a much better relationship uh, with the social uh, network and the individual than we used to have, but we don't know how to do it. And whenever we've tried before, we've overshadowed it and we've basically blocked them out because we're so big. So how do we have something that's authentic? So there is, a, I believe, a genuine interest on the part of healthcare. So I, I would argue that that's a, a strand to follow. And perhaps the best known is in Denmark. It's called the, uh, the Mind Lab, Danish Mind Lab. And this is where government has said that we need to become more innovative. We need to kind of uh, protect our ability to take some risks, to be innovative, um, and we need to do it in concert with the community and uh, with, uh, with business. So they've created the Danish Mind Lab as one example. Anyway, so that, I think, is, is where this is leading, and I hope it will be a genuine exploration rather than... Uh, what can happen is uh, the best of intentions, and it will still end up with the systems overshadowing everything else. Right. Same question, but now for healthcare professions. That is particularly people like I used to be, and there are a lot of us, and there are a lot of the professions. What can they do to encourage the passionate amateurs? Well, I see... I mean, this is where the groundswell will occur is between the individual healthcare professional and the so-called passionate amateur. They already have an alliance. They already are working under uh, the professionals, that is, are working usually under, you know, as trying circumstances as the, um, you know, as the families are. Um, And so this is the great potential for collaboration. I mean, we feel so strongly about it that, 
my wife who helped co-found Plan has now created a business for that, you know, of all things. We've always worked in the nonprofit sector, but she's actually created a social purpose business called Ties, T-Y-Z-E dot com. And its exclusive purpose is to provide a bridge between um, formal care providers, professionals in the health care and social care systems, and, um, and individuals um, who have um, a disability or aging, chronic illness, and the like, and their friends and family. And so um, uh, I, I see this as the area of the greatest potential, and if I was to if I was to be queen of, of any healthcare system, I would be focusing on how do we make this relationship between healthcare professionals and um, the individuals that they support uh, as strong and robust as possible. One of the angles there, and time is going to run out on us, unfortunately, is that a growing number of healthcare professionals are themselves family caregivers. They're what they call double-duty family caregivers. They, particularly nurses, but not exclusively nurses, they look after patients during the day and look after their families during the night. And they very much understand um, the the sort of connections from uh, various points of view. But it seems to me that they would be perhaps one of the leading edges in moving the professions along in, in the direction you're, you're talking about, which is profoundly yeah. important. I agree. And, you know, I, I, know I couldn't help but uh, listen to your theme every time the, <laughs> our breaks were over and uh, uh, you used the Beatles song, Help. But there's another That's Beatles song as well, which is I get by with a little help by my, from my friends. I love it. Now, we're going to have to stop here, unfortunately, but I'm looking forward very much to hearing about ties. And I want to also make a comment in a moment about um, PLAN. But I want, first of all, to thank you to our listeners. Please email us with comments and questions. Thank you to Al for sharing with us the experience. We wish you every success in PLAN and all the things you do. And please, now our next episode is going to be talking about what reform, healthcare reform, should bring for family caregivers. So once again, our many thanks and best of luck and look forward to maybe speaking with you again. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being right.